to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I haven't been here for a couple of weeks. Actually, we were on holidays and I was preaching down at Erskineville. So some of you I haven't met. My name's uh, Andrew Errington. I'm the one that's being replaced. Uh, But it's good to be here. Um, Temporarily, yeah. Let's pray as we come again to God's word. Father, we do ask you to bless us. This morning, as we begin this series on the book of Proverbs, we ask you to speak to us through this strange and wonderful part of your word, that we might become truly wise, for Jesus' sake. Amen. What does it mean to be a wise person? I wonder if you've ever ever given that question much serious thought, what it looks like to be wise. And yet, when we pause to think about it, I think it's quite clear to us that there is actually, there is such a thing as wisdom in this life, uh, and it is possible to live more or less wisely. We all, I suspect, know people who we regard as either quite wise or quite foolish. We all, I suspect, know times when we have ourselves made better or worse choices, being more or less foolish. However, we often don't go much beyond that. We don't keep thinking about it. We don't inquire further into what wisdom really involves. We therefore also often assume, I think, that it lies within our power to be wise. We, we could be, we'll, we'll become wise people, surely. Maybe it's just about getting older. If, if we just bothered to be more careful, we think, we could do it. We would do it. We would live more wisely. Wisdom, if we give it any thought, is something we are certainly capable of. Well, the Bible takes the question of wisdom a lot more seriously than this. In particular, within the Old Testament, there is a whole body of literature devoted to thinking carefully about the question of wisdom. Because they come from a very different time, these writings are in many ways strange and a bit unfamiliar to us. Yet they ply this question with a depth and patience that is not often seen in our day. They urgently and persistently ask the question of what it looks like to be wise and how we may do it. The answers they uncover are not always what we expect. They challenge us, these writings, at many levels at simple practical levels about how we live day to day and at deep basic levels about our whole attitude towards life. They challenge us. We're beginning a series today looking at one of these books, the book of Proverbs. Uh, It'll be a bit of an odd series in some ways. We're not working our way through the book one chapter after another because there's 31 chapters and that would take a very long time, uh, so we're not doing that. Rather, we're taking kind of samples from the book over the course of seven weeks. The first three weeks will focus on some key thoughts from the first nine chapters of Proverbs. In the first nine chapters, there are kind of longer pieces of poetry. And we'll look at some of them. Uh, 
But after chapter 10, the style of Proverbs changes dramatically and instead of long poems, we find actual Proverbs. Pithy, one-sentence thoughts that are designed to make you reflect. Uh, I hope you'll have a look at some of these. Um, Can I suggest that over the course of... We'll we'll spend the second half of the series bumping into some of the second half of the book. But can I suggest that over the course of the series, you might like to read the book of Proverbs as a whole. Um, You could read it through starting today uh, from chapter 1, or you could simply read the chapter that corresponds to the day of the month. It won't matter that much if it's out of order. There's 31 chapters, 31 days in October, and then you can just go in and, you know... That's another idea. Um, If you're not already in one, you might like to join a small group for this series. Just put that on a communication card if you do. This is a very different kind of book to a lot of the rest of the Bible. And our hope is that this will make it really enriching in all sorts of different ways. We begin today, though, in a fairly normal way by having a look at the opening chapter of Proverbs. So I hope you'll have it there before you, Proverbs chapter 1. It's on page 625. Proverbs begins with an introduction. This is one of those sermons where it actually will help you to have, the, have it open, because we're going to look at the text as we go through. Proverbs begins with an introduction and a purpose statement. Verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Then it says what they're for. For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. This book, we're told, originates with King Solomon. David's son and heir, who, according to the Bible, was given a great gift of wisdom when he became king. Uh, We're not going to spend a whole lot of time thinking about Solomon, uh, but if you want to read about it, the story is told in 1 Kings chapters 3 and 4. For now, all we need to say is that this book of wisdom and Proverbs has its origin in Israel's remote past, in a time very different to ours, at the high point of Israel's historical existence. Under King Solomon, Israel was doing very well. Uh, We'll need to keep this situation in mind at various points as we go through. Now, the purpose of the book of Proverbs, we're told, is to help us learn to live well. That's what wisdom is really about, being able to live well. Wisdom is basically, if I can put it like this, that knowledge of the world and of things that enables you to live well as a human being. And this, says the introduction, means discipline, understanding, prudence, and justice. Discipline, understanding, prudence, justice. Let's just pause here. What do you think of those things that are listed there? How do you think you are going with them? These, according to this book, are part of what wisdom involves. Um, Can we just notice the way these things feel a little foreign? 
If you had to make up, if you had to write down a list of the virtues that our culture most values, do you think any of these would come up in that list? Maybe understanding, maybe justice. Probably not prudence or discipline. These things, the book says, are valuable both for the young, verse 4, those just setting out on adult life. This is a kind of, this is in many ways a book for parents who are a bit grumpy about their children. Uh, The young need to learn, and we'll see more of that as we go. But it's also for those who are already in some sense wise, verse 5. They too can learn much from what is here. But then in verse 7, upsetting all our expectations, there is a bombshell. Verse 7, from out of nowhere, we are told, it's like this bolt from the blue that mucks up everything you're expecting. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Suddenly, there's this major religious statement. This claim comes at several key moments throughout Proverbs. Something about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. And it is really the central striking claim of the Bible's teaching about wisdom. What does it mean? Most simply, it's a claim that we cannot truly begin to live well without giving God his rightful place in our hearts and in our lives. I don't think this is a claim that there is no understanding or discipline or knowledge at all apart from God. More that these things cannot be rightly combined and become the foundation of a truly wise life apart from the knowledge and reverence of God. You cannot really get off the ground with wisdom, it's saying, apart from the fear of the Lord. That would be like trying to write a story without knowing any of the basic rules of grammar. You might get some words right and some connected ideas, but you wouldn't get a story. Now, this makes this claim in verse 7, as we now see, really pretty offensive. But there it is. Why is this so, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? Actually, we're not told for now, and so we will leave this question aside. We'll return to it later and throughout our series. For now, let's just follow where Proverbs leads, because what becomes immediately clear is that despite this claim... The wisdom Proverbs has to offer is not just religious and spiritual. In verses 8 and following, if you look at it there, we hear the voice of a parent addressing his or her child. And what they basically say is, this is the wisdom, it's a really bad idea to join a violent criminal gang. Listen to it. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood, let's waylay some harmless soul, let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit, we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we will share a common purse." If they say that, verse 15, my son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of the birds. 
These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. Here we have a stark example that illustrates one of the central claims of Proverbs. Evil and injustice are really stupid. Sin rebounds back upon the one who does it and leads him or her almost inevitably to destruction. Now, put aside for the moment your objection that that's not always the case and that sometimes crime does pay. Proverbs and the Bible as a whole actually knows that very well, but here it is concerned to say something else, to say the more important thing, that mostly it doesn't. Mostly, violence and greed are self-destructive. Now, it's easy to feel like this advice is pretty irrelevant for us, isn't it? I, I doubt many of us will be tempted later today to join a violent gang. But, of course, that's mostly because of our privileged position in the world. In many parts of the world, indeed in parts of Australia, this is actually deeply practical, relevant wisdom. We can easily imagine just these words on the lips of parents in Syria, in Nigeria, in Baltimore, maybe even Reevesby. If we imagine ourselves into a more difficult economic situation, I think we can see how it might very well be tempting to throw in our lot and have a common purse. The allure of comradeship and prosperity is very powerful. ICAC is not that far from some of this. Not ICAC itself, they're trying to do a good job, but what they're prosecuting. We are hardly immune from the temptation to make money at others' expense, are we? Okay, fine. Okay, maybe it has some wisdom. Okay, but why is this example at the beginning of the book? I think it's because it illustrates really clearly the simple central issue at stake. The choice of wisdom or folly. This is what the question of wisdom is about. It's not some abstract, esoteric, religious question. It's a question about how we are going to live our lives. Are we going to live them well or badly? Are we going to choose success or self-destruction? Every person, as anyone with any real experience of life knows, we all have available to us at one point or another deeply destructive and sinister options. Each of us is set before possibilities of life and death. At one level, wisdom is a simple matter. Choose life. Don't be an idiot. Now, perhaps when we put it like this, we might start to think we're doing okay. As I said, I suspect no one here is currently considering throwing in their lot with a criminal gang, although if you are, don't do it. That's what the Bible says. Don't do that. It would, however, be a mistake to start to complacently feel we are on the, on the right track. We're doing well. Because although wisdom is, in a sense, a simple matter, it is not the case that we simply choose the path of wisdom. Tragically, the opposite is in fact the case. Let us turn to the last part of chapter 1 from verse 20. 
Here, we hear a new voice, the voice of wisdom itself, personified as a woman, calling out in public. Verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers take delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me, since they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Wisdom is depicted as a woman calling out in exasperation. Like a frustrated mother trying to get her foolish children to heed her advice. You may relate to this image. Yet wisdom is not quite like a parent, is she? Because she's not just sympathetic. When disaster eventually falls, her advice having been ignored, she laughs. Wisdom, you see, that's personified here, is, is something like, if I can put it this way, the moral purpose with which God has knit the universe together. That's an abstract thought, but stay with it. We'll see more of what this means next week. Uh, but the basic idea is that the world has a kind of natural structure and shape to it, which constantly beckons to us, like, like someone calling out to us, begging us to be reasonable. Life calls to us to, to take heed. And yet on the whole, we do not heed this call. What's really troubling about this speech is the assumption that mostly wisdom's call goes unheeded. Mostly, we seem to be told here, people choose foolishness rather than wisdom. The simple kind of relish being simple. Mockers enjoy their own mockery. We wallow in ignorance and make fun of those who want more and aspire to deep understanding. Unless we start to imagine that this is merely a question about education, a kind of advocacy for the middle class, we're reminded straight away that the issue is not that simple. No, the, most deeply, the problem is not about kind of intellectual knowledge, but spiritual knowledge. Verse 29, the problem is that we do not choose the fear of the Lord. And in fact, that problem is, is, is universal. Verse 24, no one, wisdom laments, 
gave heed when I stretched out my hand. One and all, in one way or another, the tragic truth is that we refuse the call that life lays upon us to live well. Uh, Friends, does that make sense to you? It's a confronting thing to read this and be told that quite probably we are all, in a sense, fools. And yet, to me at least, it doesn't sound ridiculous. This sense that the world invites me to do better than I do, to live better than I do, and that there is something, there is something deeply dumb and frustrating about the failures of my life. This is a different but important take, you see, on the reality of sin. Sin, you see, is also just folly. It is our failure to heed the call of wisdom, however it reaches us. It is our naive waywardness, our satisfaction with mockery, our complacent simplicity. And it was folly, too, that Jesus came to deal with. To finish our introduction to Proverbs, let's turn to our New Testament reading. It's in Luke chapter 7, page 1023. Because there we see Jesus, the reason I chose this, even though it's a bit weird, is because we see Jesus speak with almost the same kind of exasperation that wisdom does in Proverbs. Verse 31 of Luke chapter 7. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man, by which Jesus means himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Although they may seem a bit confusing, these words of Jesus can help us, I think, begin to know how to respond to what we've read today and how to engage with Proverbs over the coming weeks. Jesus' criticism goes like this. He says, when John the Baptist came as an ascetic, at least he was, he was kind of a minimalist guy. He didn't eat and drink. He was into fasting and kind of wearing uncomfortable clothing. People got stuck into him for not being joyful enough. Jesus himself, who had come not fasting, but doing things like making wine at weddings, apparently he wasn't somber enough. In each case, you see, people had not been willing to listen to either John or Jesus for who they actually were, but they'd only been interested in their own opinions about how things should be. They were like children interested only in their own little games, complaining that people would not join in in the way that they wanted. Jesus' message and ministry, you see, were made difficult not just by flat-out wickedness, but also just by folly and ignorance by people's preoccupation with their own silly games, by willful simplicity and unwillingness to seek true knowledge. This surely is just as true of our generation as of that one. 
despite occasional moments of clarity and goodness, very often I think we are just like Jesus' description here, children occupied with our own games and grumpy with the world when it doesn't fit our requirements and expectations. This might be excusable in children's games, of course, but as an approach to life for adults, it is not. For it is a failure to heed the call of wisdom, to live within the world as we were made to. Jesus himself, though, stood in stark contrast. One of the things that stood out to people most about Jesus was his wisdom. Where did this man get such wisdom, people asked of him, impressed. He was, you see, the one person who did not refuse wisdom's call, but truly heeded it. His life, from beginning to end, was anchored in and driven by the fear of the Lord. It was a life of discipline, understanding, prudence and justice. This is why he also says in verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. What he was getting at was the fact that through him, wisdom was making a kind of comeback. As he says elsewhere in the Gospels, with him, one greater than Solomon was here. And yet, Jesus died... A fool's death. He suffered the kind of consequences that Proverbs says are due to folly. He died the death of a fool. In anguish and distress. Engulfed by a whirlwind of disaster. Surrounded by mockers. So was his wisdom then a sham, a facade? Was he really a fool? No. Because the fool's death that he died did not belong to him. It belonged to us. This was the disaster that we deserved, the consequences of our folly. He suffered them in our place. He, the only truly wise man, died the death of a fool so that we might be spared it. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. By rights, that statement should be nothing more than an indictment of us, an indictment of our failure to live wisely. But it isn't. It's not just an indictment. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for us because that truth was lived by Jesus. And in his resurrection from the dead, he has reopened to us the possibility of wisdom. His life gives us the freedom to learn to listen to wisdom's call once again, forgiven for all the ways we have been fools. And in fact, that is an essential part of what it is to be a Christian. To learn to live wisely. I want you to be wise in what is good wrote Paul in Romans. And in Ephesians he said, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Wisdom, said Jesus, is proved right by her children. That's what we are called to as Christians. 
the children to be the children of wisdom who prove our master right. We are reading Proverbs as a church to help us in this task, the task of being wise in what is good. So as we set out in this reading, can I invite you to pray and to want to seek to grow in wisdom? But not because we think we can nail it or because we back ourselves to be wise people who are going to breeze through life free from disaster. For we won't be that. We cannot be that. But because Jesus has done what we could not do. He has lived wisely. And in him we are called and freed to learn to do so anew. Let us learn wisdom because we love Jesus. And we want to show how right he really was. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.